Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hi, Lou. Hi, everyone. Hi there. Today, we are off to Italy. <laughs> well, I wish. Buongiorno. <laughs> I wish we were really off to Italy. It may be quite some time before mm, we're off to sadly, anywhere. Yes. We're actually back in Lou's study with cappuccinos and a delicious Italian ricotta cake. And we're just going to pretend that we're drinking we um, espresso and saying prego and grazie <laughs> and watching all the stylish Italians walk past our Italian trattoria. Yes. <laughs> all of the books we're going to discuss today are set in Italy, all at very different times. So hopefully the episode will give a flavour of Italy yes. over time. I've been to Rome, Florence and Venice. Mm. You've been... Spent a lot of time in the lakes. We used to keep oh, going back yes. to the lakes. Lake Como. Um, um, Lake Como and the area generally. And yes, Venice, Rome, Florence. Mm. Um, I haven't spent much time in the south at all mm. of Italy. That's I'd what love I'd to love go, to do. love to go down to the little isles and yeah, Sicily. And, One day, if yeah. we ever travel mm. again. Uh, so, Lou, do you want to start with your first book? Yes. So, the first book that I'm going to review today is Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. Um, I'm a huge fan of Ernest Hemingway. And I've never read him. Ah, well. So, we are complete polar opposites yes, on this. we are. So, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you say. Well, look, I really recommend all of his books. I'd say he was one of my earliest influences on me as a reader. I started reading his books maybe in year 12, my final wow. year of school, and then um, my my early years of university and I'd sort of devour anything that he'd written. And one of my sons is now going through a bit of a Hemingway phase, which is rather lovely. Yeah. So he was born in 1899 in America, in Chicago. Um, he became a journalist early and then a writer. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in... 1954, and the Pulitzer Prize, which I think was for Old Ma The Old Man and the Sea, which of course is a very f famous Hemingway book, but you'd also be familiar with For Whom the Bell Tolls, which was set in the Spanish Civil War, Death in the Afternoon, which is his book about writing and bullfighting, which I found very difficult to read, yeah. but uh, it's quite extraordinary, and, and look, so many more books. So A Farewell to Arms is a story of love and war side by side. The narrator is a young man, Frederick Henry, and he is an American who volunteers to serve in the Italian army in World War I as an ambulance driver. And that's all we know about him. Hemingway gives us no explanation of why he's there or how he got there. Henry is a lieutenant and he's stationed in a town which is a little bit away from the battlefront in the mountains. Uh, and then there's a, there's a ceasefire in the war in the area because winter is approaching. And I found this quite oh, wow. amusing. And apparently it was quite common. You know, winter is coming. Yeah. Let's stop fighting. Uh, so he goes on leave. Uh, and when he returns, his friend, Rinaldi, a fellow officer in the Italian army, tells him about the English nurses who have volunteered. And one in particular, Catherine, Catherine Barclay. And Rinaldi really likes her and he introduces her to Henry. 
And Catherine is in fact grieving deeply for her fiancé who has died, but it's clear that she's more attracted to Henry than Rinaldi, and Rinaldi's actually a very good sport about that. So this is the beginning of the relationship between Catherine and Henry, which is the love story of this book. And it's, you know, people have talked about this love story in the context of Romeo and Juliet. Oh, wow. She's still grieving, obviously. And so her flirtations and dalliances with Henry, they start out as a, as a distraction and a bit of a game between the two of them. But then the relationship develops into something much deeper and nuanced and complicated. And I'm not going to go into too many details, but basically these two people are drawn together during you know, a time of terrible conflict and upheaval. And I won't go into the consequences of that relationship. The book was published in 1929. And at times, it felt to me like a precursor to parts of the English patient. Oh, and also wow. Birdsong. When I first read it, and I, I read it twice before I read it this time, um, of course, those books weren't no. published. But then I read something yesterday that suggested that Birdsong is part English patient, part Farewell to Arms. Oh, my goodness. So, obviously, someone else had the sense of Oh, I have to that. read A Farewell yeah. to Arms. Yeah. I, I think, loved the I think other you two. would really enjoy yeah. it. So, of course, in the book, The Companion to Love is War. And there has been so much written about Hemingway's writing about war in this book. You know, Henry is, of course, an American in Italy, and he's got no particular attachment to Italy's cause. You know, sometimes he, you know, you feel he's quite detached from war. Is he anti-war or you just... <sighs> not, no, not especially. No. He's indifferent. Okay. He's indifferent. Yeah. And, and at times actually a little bit reckless for okay. an officer. And I think Hemingway is detaching the reader from sort of a patriotic attachment to war and its ideals and the idea of glory and because Henry has no personal stake. And you do get a little bit of a sense of, you know, these men who are, some the Italian soldiers particularly, who are quite numb and they're trying to distance themselves from the war with women and alcohol and food. And yeah. So Henry is injured, not in any particularly heroic way. He was actually injured while getting himself some food, which I think was also a deliberate yeah. uh, ploy by Hemingway. It wasn't a heroic act. So he hurts his leg, his knee, and he's recovering in hospital and he's planning three weeks leave with Catherine. But he develops jaundice and the managing nurse at the hospital thinks that his jaundice is due to him drinking too much. So she cancels his leave and forces him to return to his company at the front where the situation has changed for the worse. Wow. And he's probably not ready to be going back. Oh, gosh. And then the most sort of powerful writing in the book are the chapters, and there's just a few of them which sort of chronicle the, a period where the, this particular Italian army is forced to retreat. So basically they've been keeping the Austro-Hungarian forces distracted and at bay. Right. But in 1917 the Germans join the Austrian effort and Henry's company, in fact the whole Italian army, is forced to retreat. And it was sort of described as one of the most humiliating periods of the war for Italy. And that just these few chapters which describe the retreat, sort of the columns of relentless troops and the lines of the vehicles 
and particularly the assault of the weather, so the rain and the oh. wind and the mud and rain actually looms very largely in the book. It's quite interesting. And, you know, he's told by one of his fellow soldiers that their efforts can't have been in vain and, you know, he, he makes comments about sacrifice and glory and they're really powerful chapters. And then Henry does something that you're not expecting. And even though I'd read this book twice before, I'd forgotten. And I was taken aback by it entirely. And I think, you know, Hemingway is really bringing into square focus the reality of of war. So, look, totally recommend this book. Um, It's an absolute classic. I love the way books do that. When you read them at one period in your life, you know, usually when you're young and you have one impression of them and they make a certain impact on you. And then you can read them at a later time and it's like it's a different book. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think I first read this book when in quite a formative time yes. as a young adult and it was sort of forming ideas about these issues, yes. really. Yeah. And also, you know, there's a very sort of heady, tragic love story. And so it's a very formative time. And then read it a bit later. And then, yeah, I looked, I was still blindsided by yeah. it. It's, it's just a small incident, but it's quite telling. Yeah. And Hemingway was clearly inspired by his own experience. So at the age of 22, when World War I had started, he tried to join the US Army, but he was refused on account of his eyesight. So he, in fact, joined the Red Cross and he became an ambulance driver on the Italian front. So he's clearly been inspired by his own experiences. I think the most distinctive thing about his books particularly in the era that he wrote, is his style of writing. So his writing's quite minimalist and sort of pared back style of prose. Is that accessible? Would would you use that? Yes, highly accessible. And, you know, I don't think that people would pick this book up now and say, oh, that's very minimalist and pared back. But for the time, it was really very different writing. It wouldn't stand out today, but it certainly did then. It wasn't typical of writing in the 20s and 30s. You know, if you're comparing him to a William Faulkner or other very, very different style of writing. And he'd become a a very junior newspaper reporter at age 18. And many people sort of speculated that it's that sort of journalism training, that style of writing. No floweriness. Has sort of contributed to that. And he leaves a lot up to the reader to determine themselves. So... It's like he trusts the reader. But then, of course, in order to do that, I think you've got to write quite masterful yes. sentences anyway. I love writers that do that, though, that give the reader some credit and treat you like you're an intelligent yes. person who yeah. can figure it out. I agree entirely. And I think for Hemingway, this book particularly, and a couple of others of his that I've read, they're very dialogue-driven. So you're, in fact, oh, okay. as the characters are talking to each other, Yeah, I mean, this is a you're very dialogue-intensive book. Okay. I mean, you know, ah. pages after pages, just dialogue uh-huh. between characters. Okay. And so, you know, the characters are revealed to yes, you through yes. their dialogue. So Love that's, it. That that's sounds great. so good, Lou. And so you will have heard, Virginia, of the iceberg theory of writing, which was, in fact, Hemingway's concept. So in his book, Death in the Afternoon, which is the study on bullfighting and writing in 1932, I just want to share this little quote with you. If a reader of prose knows enough about what he is writing, he may omit things that he knows. And the reader, if the writer is writing truly enough, will have a feeling of those things as strongly as though the writer had stated them. The dignity of movement of an iceberg is due to only one eighth of it being above water. Yeah. So that was Hemingway. And that's exactly his yeah. philosophy of writing. I that love he, that yeah. style where they've done all the research or in this case lived the experience yes. 
and you trust them. Yes. And you you don't need lots of extra description no, of things. No. You just know that you're located in the story in the way he intended. And then I'm just going to leave you with this final little quote that he said, because uh, he went to live in Paris and he wrote, I would stand and look out over the roofs of Paris and think, do not worry, you've always written before and you will write now. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Oh. Write the truest sentence you know. Oh, how beautiful. Yeah, and that was him responding to having writer's block, which I thought was yeah. magnificent. Oh, magnificent. Boy. Which book have you read uh, set in well, Italy? Well, the first one is actually only half set in Italy, and I'd forgotten that, but it's A Room with a View oh. by E.M. Oh. Forster, Edward Forster, although I have a feeling he may have been called Morgan. He was meant to be christened, I think it was Harry Morgan, and by accident he was christened Edward Morgan, which was his dad's name. Oh. I think it was one of those slips of the tongue over the font, <laughs> a bit like when Princess Diana said the wrong name. That's right, she yeah. married the wrong person. Yeah. <laughs> which, with hindsight. Yeah, she did. <laughs> so this was published in 1908, so well before World War I, and it's quite striking to me reading it how different sensibilities were back then compared to now, and it really does make me wonder what 100 years from now will be like. So Edward... Morgan Foster was born in 1879 in England, so he was born a bit earlier than Hemingway. Yeah, 10 years earlier, yeah. Yeah, and when he was still a child, he inherited from his great-aunt £8,000, which is the equivalent now of about a million pounds. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and he went to Cambridge for university and he was part of a philosophical group that later, the members of that group later became the Bloomsbury Group. And I think one of his books, The Sisters, uh, modelled on Virginia and Vanessa Bell. So after university, he travelled with his mother to Europe and their time in Italy was the inspiration for A Room with a View. So this is one of those stories that I read, you know, many, many years ago and I've since seen a couple of the adaptations to screen. So it was quite interesting recently to go back and read it afresh. And I found the writing style a little bit dated and, and rather diffident, which did surprise me because I read a lot of 20th century novels. And so I am used to that sort of older, more flowery style of writing. But this isn't flowery. But it's also, I think it sounds like it's probably different again from Hemingway because he sounds very minimalist. This is not so much minimalist as Diffident is the best word I can describe. There's is, the, is it a propriety thing? Is I it, think is it's it... a bit of a few things. I think there is yeah. an element of propriety. I mean, I imagine that some people, and I think this is the case, argue that his restraint in this novel reflects his life as a gay man who was not openly gay, okay. as you couldn't really be back then. Only his closest friends later knew that he was gay. And this is one of his earliest books, I gather, and I th understand that his style changed quite a bit as he grew older. So I'm quite keen now to go back and read his other books in his mm. order of publication because I, I love doing that and noticing the change in style. So this book follows a young Lucy Honeychurch. She's on holiday in Italy uh, with her slightly older cousin, Miss Bartlett, and she's there as a chaperone. And they're staying at a pension in... Uh, it's full of other stuffy... English people, and they're in the dining room bemoaning the fact that they had asked for rooms on the south side with a view of the Arno River, 
and they've been put on the north side looking onto the courtyard. And an older man and his son, who are also British, offer to swap rooms with them. And so that's how they meet Mr and Master Emerson and become acquainted with them and they start to arrange various outings around Florence with them and with several of the other British guests at the Pension. So their experience of Italy is really not very Italian at all because they're basically staying in a Pension that's run by a Cockney (laughs) full of other British people. So their their exposure to the Italians sort of lies in the man mm. who drives them on their picnics and that sort of thing, which is with, quite... So with all the social strictures <laughs> of English society. Yeah, it's really quite amusing. Mm. And the drama of the novel lies in a uh, spontaneous kiss and all the fallout from that. And it's such a chaste kiss through mm. our eyes in, in 2020 and, and even probably for a long time it's been regarded as a very chaste event. Yet at the time, you know, in 1908 when this was written, it was regarded as a young man insulting her oh, okay, and insulting her honour. And so a decision is made to say nothing much more about it. I think the chaperone has a word with him and then the ladies just move on to Rome where Lucy meets Cecil, whose mother is known to her mother, so that's okay. Yeah. Then after they're back in England, they become engaged. And it's not a spoiler, that's just an integral part of the story. And young Master Emerson, uh, he of the chaste kiss, turns up again in England and lots of drama ensues. And I'm not going to mm. say any more about the plot um, in case this is new to you. So in spite of saying it's a slightly diffident style, I, I really did love mm. it. It just takes you a little while to get mm. into the swing of that sort of writing. And there's a lot that's not said and there's a lot that's left unsaid. And I think it is partly perhaps just his style and partly a function of the time mm. and partly probably the way he just wants to tell the story. Mm. We're sort of not really in Lucy's head very much, so you don't really know what she's thinking as much as you do with more modern books. And do you think that's because he just couldn't get into the head of know. a young woman? I don't know. I'm not yeah. a scholar of him, no. so I don't know, but... It was interesting. I have not read it, Virginia, but I, for me, as you were talking about the characters, I'm just thinking of the adaptation with Dame Maggie Smith and Helena Bonham Carter. Helena Bonham Carter. And Daniel Day-Lewis. Yep. And Denham Elliott was the Englishman who whose son did the chase kiss. Is that right? Absolutely the, superb. And I, as you're talking, so it was a real visual feast, that movie, yes, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Interestingly, E.M. Forster was a conscientious objector and he also drove, I think it was ambulances, for the Red Cross in the war. Yeah. What a coincidence. Yes. Because he didn't want to fight. I think he must have had a very difficult life being a gay man at that period of time in England. Did he write Howard's End? Yes, Howard's End. He's not Remains of the Day. No, he is Where Angels Fear to Tread. Oh, Where Angels Fear to Tread. The Longest Journey, Passage to India. Okay, And then Morris which yes. is a gay uh, relationship. And the and British actor Denham Elliott, I think, appeared in all of the screen probably, adaptations. Probably, yes. yes. And he was a bit anti-America and he mm. that's why he didn't want to publish his books or he didn't want them to be adapted for screen because he didn't want Americans to do it. It's interesting because Merchant Ivory did the... Yes, and they are, they are very British cast. Very British. So really rather delightful, but, yeah, not, not as much Italian flavour as I perhaps was expecting but still quite an entertaining insight into 
tourists traveling in a beautiful country and just surrounding themselves yes, by their own country. Ha- yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the book that Louise and I have both read for today's conversation is Love and War in the Apennines by Eric Newby. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your mm. thoughts on it, Lou. We both read the edition that's published by Slightly Foxed, who produced the Fox Quarterly editions that I love so much. Mm. The series of memoirs that they've published is just wonderful. I have the whole set to date and I've loved every single one that I've read. I really do think that memoirs set in the past are a particularly great thing to be reading Mm. now in, in 2020 because it's so important for us to see this time as part of a bigger picture and to realise that there have been some really truly challenging times in the past and this is just another one of those and we will get through this and this will then be in the past yeah, at some absolutely. point. It's good to step back and see it in that context. And the struggles that people have been through and the challenges. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree. And some of the people who've written the Slightly Foxed memoirs are established authors, but some of them are not. And I find it so useful to realise that they're just like you and me, but they've just experienced things that, you know, that I haven't experienced. And then they've just sat down and written about what happened to them. And I have to say, after reading about what happened to Eric Newby in the war, what he experienced, COVID really does not seem so bad. And he does have that British restraint. Yes. So he just gets on with it, which, you know, is really terribly admirable. So Eric Newby was a British travel writer, ultimately. Uh, He was born in 1919 and he died in 2006. His father was in a business that manufactured women's clothing. They were a wholesale manufacturer, and I'll come back to that later. And he met Eric's mother when she was a model at Harrods, and then she also modelled for them at the Lane and Newby wholesale clothing business. And I think he was, I read somewhere that he was too scared to tell his partner, Mr Lane, that he was stealing one of the models. I think he just went and married her. And when he married her, he was 25 years older than her. And she had Eric and then she went into the clothing business as well. So she just sort of joined in with him. But Eric Newby's father sounds like quite a tricky character, Mm. a bit difficult. And then when World War II broke out, Eric, he served in India and in North Africa, and then he was recruited into the Black Watch Battalion that trained, I think he trained at Sandhurst, and then he went on a submarine to Italy on a raid, which ultimately wasn't successful, and then he and a number of the Black Watch were captured and they were put in an Italian prisoner of war camp, and he was later awarded the Military Cross for his part in the raid. And the prisoner of war camp that he was sent to was at Chieti on the Adriatic coast near Sicily, so right down the bottom. And then later he was sent to another one at Fontanellato. And when the Italian armistice was announced in September 1943, a number of the prisoners escaped, including Eric. And he was 23 at the time, which makes Mm. this whole story even more staggering. Um, This book, Love and War in the Apennines, is his very detailed account of his time from coming out of the submarine, which I just found both terrifying and fascinating, sort of in the dark, coming Mm. out in these canoes onto the beach. It all sounded a bit sort of spooky and incredibly visual and terrifying to me. And then they, they had this raid planned where they had to plant their bombs on an airfield and then they were captured 
and then it goes right through, the book goes right through to the end of the book where he's captured for a second time, not by Italians by then, but by the Germans. And I should say at the outset that it may sound a bit as though we're giving away spoilers, but uh, I think the reality is when you come to read this book, you know what happened to him. It's the pleasure of the book is reading about how it all came about and yes. the details of it all and the suspense of it all, which are all pretty amazing. So we're just going to go there. I absolutely loved it. It's the sort of thing that I just enjoy so much. And the fact that he was 23 when all of this was happening to him is quite extraordinary. The local Italians who really did hate the German soldiers put themselves and their families at great risk to help him hide in the Apennine Mountains. And the book, it's completely unsentimental, but it is, in effect, a love letter to all the wonderful farmers and the wives and the beautiful people who risked such danger to keep him from being recaptured. Probably the most important part of his experience for him is when the Black Watch escape out of the Italian Mm. prisoner of war camp, uh, when the Germans come in and all the villagers help them and they help Mm. him. And he has a broken foot, which makes it even more amazing that he evaded capture. Just staggering, really. And he meets a very beautiful Slavic girl named Vanda, who takes incredible risks for him, Mm -hmm. as does her father. And... We know that he ultimately marries her, which is, you know, a lovely romantic touch. So she appears in many of his later books. So it's a rather lovely story. And she sort of, even though the time that they have together at the beginning is relatively short, yes. she sustains him, doesn't she? She really does. Throughout the whole ordeal. Such a strong person. Yes. You know, he's waiting to hear from her and, and, yeah. he, and she does sustain him. She strikes me as quite a staggeringly amazing person. Yes. She's no nonsense. Yeah, and, yeah. and ingenious and she just yeah. gets on with doing all sorts of things to help him and writes letters to him in code and just puts her neck on the line. Obviously, they were very taken with each other. It was mm. an instant attraction that sustained them throughout their entire lives. My favourite part of the book is when, after he's been hiding for a while, moving from farm to farm, he's told that a group of the local elders are meeting and they have a secret meeting and they decide that winter is coming, which means snow and it means a definite capture for him. I think he would be so exposed on the mountain and there are no leaves on the trees, so everything is very visible. And so they decide to go up into an almost impenetrable part of the mountain and build him a tiny hut, or he calls it a cave, and it's sort of built out against the rock and it's got two beds in it and a little fireplace and it's tiny. And then they proceed to take turns coming up to the mountain to bring him food and supplies. It's just the most beautiful story about human beings helping one another and putting their own lives at risk. It's just wonderful. My only criticism of the book is that there were times when I had to skim bits because he goes into laborious detail towards the end about his treks through the various parts of the Apennines and they seemed very steep and rugged and frankly quite scary but he describes in exact detail the routes that he took and I found it much more useful just to Google the Apennines to be able to visualise how inhospitable and windy and dangerous it was up there. I found I just sort of skimmed some of those descriptions because they were a bit 
lengthy for me. But other than that, I just absolutely loved yeah. it. Yeah, I look, I, I really enjoyed it. And, and look, many of my comments are, are similar to yours, Ginny, which I think is interesting that, we, you know, you read a book and, and you have the same yeah. sort of visceral response to it. And I was fascinated by Italy's place in history during this book and the impact of the geography where he found himself. As you pointed out to me the other day, he wasn't the only British soldier hiding in this area. So, you know, there were actually quite a lot of them. So Italy had obviously been an enemy of their allies. And then in 43, after the Battle of the Mediterranean, they capitulated, Mussolini was arrested, and the country was essentially divided. So the north was occupied by the Germans, which is where he is. Yes. With the assistance of the rebel militia, who were Mussolini's thugs. Yes. But then the Allies had control of the South. So there were at times when his mind wandered to could he head south? Yes. Which is where he'd come from, of course, Sicily. So, you know, there's all these soldiers who are stranded in no man's land in the north of Italy. And fortunately for them, they have this Apennine mountain range. Yeah. And look, I did the same as you. I got out my atlas and I got out some old maps we had of Italy and because I really wanted to track where he was and the villages he was in. So if any of you do the same, get out your atlas, you'll see that the Apennine mountain range, so it runs like a seam down the boot of Italy, right from the Ligurian Alps all the way down yeah. to, I think it's even to all the way down to Calabria. There's our executive producer having a bit of a bark, everybody. (laughs) And they weren't traditional mountain ranges. There were some very high peaks, but they were very densely wooded, weren't they? Yeah. And lots of discrete villages and places to hide in those. Lots of rock. Yes, lots of rock. Lots of wind. Yeah. And you could almost be blown off them if you weren't There was a lot of ascending and descending, wasn't there? It wasn't sort of like just all the way up. There was was sort of lots of different um, levels Really inhospitable. And as I couldn't agree with you more, the heroes of the book are those incredible people in the region who banded together. And, you know... To me, it was their generosity. So they obviously had these incredible networks because wherever he was, wherever he moved to, Vanda knew where he was and the band of elders knew where he was. So there weren't any partisans at this time. Apparently, after he left and was shipped off to Germany, that's when the partisans in 1944 in Italy really started to band together. So he he kind of just missed that period. But they were informal partisans. They were. Because they were all obviously had this incredible network of communication. They were sharing their food. Yeah, and they didn't have much themselves. They didn't have much. They were, you know, peasants really. They were peasants. Just eking out a living, barely eking out a living. And any resources they had, they shared, which was incredible. Well, most of them. Most of them. There were a couple. Yeah, that's true. So for me, the most enjoyable parts of the book were his interactions with those characters and they obviously left a huge impression on him because he was able to draw these very vivid pictures of incredibly hard working strong physically strong yeah, oh, yeah. resourceful men and women who had quite pivotal roles in their families and their communities and I loved it when he went to hide on the Pian del Soto with Luigi and Agatha's family. Oh, yes. And they all work. He joined in as well, you know, age 23. He was expected to work hard with them side by side. And they gave him very back-breaking physical work, moving all those stones. Yes, just clearing. Clearing the land. Rocks off the land. And he did it all day. Didn't he? All day he would do that. Sun up to sundown. And and he he really wanted that physical work, didn't he? But then at night they would sit in the farmhouse kitchen 
London and they wanted to talk to him about London and England. Yes. But particularly they wanted to talk about English criminals and murderers. <laughs> I just thought that was Jack the Ripper. Absolutely charming. They'd obviously yeah. heard about yes. uh, I think they had one book. <laughs> you know, and and it was just extraordinary. Yeah, you know, they sort of exhausted everything he knew about, you know, English murderers. <laughs> it was fabulous. And then there's a beautiful sort of vignette at the end of the book when he and another soldier, James, are on the run and they collapse absolutely exhausted into a barn and they really don't care what happens they're to them so at the end. They're so tired. I really got a sense then of it was just, it was almost like they're at the end. They had nothing left to yeah. give. And a little boy called Archimedes who has lots of brothers and sisters, and apparently all of them were named after yes. Greek gods. He finds them in the barn and he brings his father, the partially blind Amadeo, to them. Uh, and he says he will shelter them for as long as they need it. And they, they literally come with a pan of soup to meet them. And he says something like, I have nothing to lose. I have nothing to lose. I know. Extraordinary, wasn't mm. it, really? And then they're invited. It's sort of the end of the year and they're invited to go down out of the woods to a village to spend Christmas with the local villagers. And there's a lady there and she says to him, what do you most want for Christmas? You know, and I'm expecting him to mm. say freedom mm. or whatever. And he said, I just want a hot bath. And so they fill up, you know, they have all these vessels on the stove and they fill up this empty wine barrel and he and James take turn getting into the barrel and her and her husband just scrub, scrub him their backs. and wash their hair. Yes. And it's just this incredible act of kindness. Yeah, absolutely. It? It's just yeah. floored me. I was really moved by it. And, it was um, so tender. It was really, really beautiful. And then later that day they sat in someone's kitchen and listened to the radio broadcast. Oh. Of the British King. Yes. His Christmas message. And he actually talks directly to all he of says, you out there. Some of you may be in the Italian mountains yeah. listening. I just And they had tears running down their cheeks. They wept. Extraordinary. Which they didn't yeah. ever do normally. That end really floored oh. me. It was really, really beautiful. You really you were acutely aware of the impact of his presence on their families, but also the, the risks yeah. that they were taking. So that was Queen Elizabeth's father who had yeah. the stutter. George. And you can just imagine him doing his Christmas message in the midst of war, mm. trying not to stutter, and probably not realising that he was actually having an impact on people in the Italian mountains. Yeah. You know, he was probably a bit disconnected from that sitting in Buckingham yes. Palace. Yes. And we're reading about the other end of it with these two men who are just starving, hungry, they're desperate, they're tired, they've been on the run for nearly two years or whatever it is. And it really did make a difference yeah. to them. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that they could hear this address in yeah, the middle of yeah. this wooded air. It was just yeah, it was just it, extraordinary. Yeah. Like you, I did struggle with some sections. I found them a bit slow and they did drag for me. And for me it was when he was alone, as you said, and he was describing in great detail his journey. Because he was alone for a lot of the time. He was. He was he very was. isolated. And then you and I had a little chat about this earlier in the week and I I think maybe on reflection I was a bit harsh because I think the slower pace of those sections and the detail really emphasise that loneliness and the solitariness of of his position. So you would be noticing everything. You'd be listening out for everything. Yeah. You'd be on high alert, yeah. wouldn't you? He was on high alert for the entire um, time. When he left his little cave to go and get water from a spring, he had to walk backwards with a branch erasing his footsteps. 
yeah. so that no one would see. And he sometimes forgot yeah. that, you know, yeah. because in, in his descriptions of what was around him, you, you could relax a little bit, but he was never relaxed And there were, you know, there was that time when he came across the German soldier yes. who was chasing butterflies. and yes. Which yeah. was quite comical, wasn't yeah, and it? And quite a bizarre yeah. encounter. He'd come up from a spa town with a driver and he was chasing butterflies. And you, you suddenly realise these people are everywhere yeah. and he could be so easily yeah. caught. And people were dobbing in people. And, oh. and, of course, that is what happened in the end, as we know, that he, he was dobbed into, actually dobbed in initially to the militia, who were the Italian fascists who were helping the Germans. Well, I do have one little one little comment, and uh, which I think places him as a particular generation of men, that when Newby sort of describes people for his readers, his first descriptions are whether they're attractive yes. and whether they're large or small, fat or thin, you know, whether they're buxom, whether they've got nice legs. And it did jar a little bit for me. I think if Eric Newby were, were writing now, yep. he would be pulled up. Oh, for sure. For these kind Absolutely. of descriptions. Very much off his time. Yeah. But I do think, and I'll talk a little bit about this, I'm reading, I'm halfway through Something Wholesale, which yes. is another Slightly Foxed book. And it picks up from when... He's been uh, liberated from the German prisoner of war. Camp. Yes. So there's a, been a bit of an el- elapse of time from the end of Apennines to the start of this book, and he's just come home to England, and his parents are quite worried, or his mother is quite worried about him. His father is not. <laughs> his mother, you know, would try and send him things to the prisoner of war camp, and the father would stop her. So he asked for clothing and he got a letter for saying, you know, you know how hard it is to come by this stuff. And he says, there was no point pointing out to my dad that it was hanging in my wardrobe. He wanted corduroy, his corduroy pants. But the dad was just... They're in the rag trade as well. Yeah, yeah just <laughs> a very unusual man. So when Eric is talking about people's physical appearance... I'm not going to let him off the hook because I don't think it's okay, but he does come from an environment where he worked for about 17 years in the rag trade. And so he was always, there were models in the business, they're always Mm. talking about people's measurements and their size and legs Mm. and what their bust size is and their back length Mm. and all that sort of thing. And, you know, everybody in that environment has those same conversations. So. And his eye is obviously drawn to that sort of yes, thing. Yes, that he you know, immediately it's, it's assesses his somebody. Yeah, yeah how yeah, fascinating. Yeah. He would definitely be pulled up now. Yeah. But it is interesting, you know, perhaps that gives him a little bit of a, an excuse for doing that. But this book, I'm loving it. I'm a little bit over, oh, yeah, about, about halfway. It's a much lighter book. As you can imagine, it's a much lighter topic. So it's post-war. He's quite... Uh, he's, he mentions that he's suffering from neuroses. So you can imagine, you know, you come back from an experience like that oh. where you've just been living on your wits and hungry and deprived and fearful and so much adrenaline for so long, you would not be the same person ever again, I'm, I'm quite sure. And, you know, they were not in the habit of coming back and talking about what they'd been no. through. That was the other big thing. Well, interesting that he 
you know, he obviously was the travel writer for The Observer for a long time, Observer newspaper, and then started writing these books. And you wonder if that really was his vehicle. You know, being this very British, yes. you know, buttoned-up man, it was his vehicle yeah. to sort of express. And get it all out. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. This book, the Something Wholesale, the later book, has got this amazing cast of kooky characters. <laughs> there are just some very odd people that mm. work in the rag trade and there's this model who throws herself at him and and then her father turns up and, and sort of starts to try and have a go at him and, <laughs> and then he has to go to the north of England to try and sell their... They're all called gowns back then, <laughs> women's <laughs> gowns, and they've all got funny names. And, you know, some of the experiences he has of going up to the department stores in the north of England and trying to offload all their stock is hilarious. He gets roped into being a a fashion compare at one point (laughs) (laughs) because the woman says, you've got a nice voice, you'll do, because the compare has... um, uh, cancelled on them at the last minute and and many of the lines that they did the gowns were for the fuller figure oh really yes. <laughs> which I think also you know he yes. was very very much into women's figures you know that was very much a part of his world and he was it's really is a fish out of water story mm. he was not suited to the rag trade <laughs> at all he, he purely fell into it because the family business and they gave him a job and it was all meant to be temporary, a temporary measure to sort of buck him up and sort of distract him when he got back and he ended up, I think he worked for them for a good 10 years and I think he was in the industry for about 17 or that. Yeah, okay. And he was just thrown in the deep end. They just sort of said, off you go, go to work, introduce yourselves and off he went and and just had to sort of learn on the job and it was another world. (laughs) Yeah. So it must have then been around the 60s that he started writing because I know that he was in the next book that I've read. He he was certainly writing for the Observer as yes, a travel so writer in the mid sixties, in nineteen sixty two. Yes, okay. so interestingly, he wrote this in sixty two, and he wrote about his experience in the Apennines in seventy one. So he yes. wrote them in reverse order. This does include six months where, after the war is over, he goes back and he is recruited by a secret division called MI9 and their role is to go and visit all of the people in Europe who had helped prisoners of war when they didn't have to. So their job was to go and try and make recompense to them and I think they were a bit bungling in the way they did it. They tried to give the Italian farmers money and, and they had given of themselves out of a desire to be generous and kind, and they didn't really want money. No, it was, it was almost offensive, wasn't it, yeah, to them? Yeah, it did cause yeah. offence. Yeah. They didn't really do it well. I'm not saying Eric and, and Vanda didn't do it well, but I think the system that they the had reparation. in place wasn't great. I also read a comment that he made, which it, the situation would have been so much better if the British soldiers had simply written and said thank you. Yes. And many did, but many didn't. Yeah. Uh, he said that really was all that was required, mm. was a thank you. And so I really, to me, love more in the Apennines is his thank you. Yes, and he did go back and meet them and say thank you in yes. person and all that. Yeah, I think they went back several times, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, I read A Small Place in Italy, which was utterly delightful. Again, a light Eric Newby a book. A much lighter topic. And it was actually first published in 1994, so quite late. And there's a reason for that. So essentially Italy, as we all would imagine, remained under his skin. You know, he obviously had such a huge fondness for those people who'd helped him and, and of course, he'd met his wife there. Yes. So this book sort of starts in 1967 and he is in Africa 
doing some travel stories for the Observer newspaper uh, on safaris. I think it's a piece that he's not particularly connected to. And Vanda has gone to Italy to see friends. And she rings him and says, quick, Italy house prices are going up. And they've always had a dream to buy a house in Italy, a holiday house in Italy. And so he does as she says. And <laughs> uh, of course, because she's not she's somebody you say no to, it's Vanda. <laughs> and she's just delightful, isn't Gorgeous. she? So, you know, a short time after that, they settled on a ruined farmhouse on the border of Tuscany and Liguria. So if you're looking at your map of Italy and you see Parma, where Vanda was from a village quite close to Parma, which is on one side of the Apennines, on the Emilia Romana, side and if you went straight up over the Apennines and down towards the coastal side that is where they bought this farmhouse and so this is the story really brimming with details in the signature newbie style of how they managed to renovate the farmhouse Um, they would drive from England to Italy every chance they got every holiday saved up every holiday and they become enmeshed with and accepted by this cast of really colourful characters very soon you know it really shows you how open and generous the Italian people are he does describe women in his trademark newbie way but it's a real celebration of life in rural Italy everyone pitching in to help harvesting olives together for a lighter read in the travel genre I really recommend it it's delightful and they were there from 67 to 91 where they eventually sold and then he wrote this in 95 that sounds lovely yeah that's lovely yeah what else have you been diving into Virginia? I've been watching a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. Oh. Oh. I've heard about this. Yeah. Our friend Lindley, you know, sort of strongly recommended it to me. Do you mean Lindley, the number one ticket holder? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Of the Diving In podcast? I certainly do. <laughs> and this is a documentary where a group of ex-employees and many of them are actually ex-directors of Google, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Pinterest, mm. a whole raft of different platforms, all sit down and speak about the way social media algorithms have mm. been adapted in recent times. Well, you know, and it's evolved and it's continuing to evolve. And they are all driven by a serious concern about the impact it's having on society, on politics, on divisiveness amongst people. And they explain how they use pretty basic psychology to me. I mean, I've sort of, you know, psychology 101 at uni and a lot of it's pretty well-known stuff in order to make people addicted to their... (sighs) whichever platform they they might be using. Mm. And they each have different things that they're addicted to. So one guy says he's addicted to his email. Another guy, the Pinterest guy, was addicted to Pinterest. And he found he'd work all day and then come home and be scrolling. It's just a rabbit hole, Pinterest. Yes. I mean, it just... Well, they all are. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because it's a visual rabbit hole as opposed to a... So it's quite different And it depends what you are, whether you're a visual learner. Exactly. So... There's a few clunky bits in it, which Lindley did say to me, where they have this sort of dramatisation of these people being the oh, algorithm. Oh, I hate it when shows do that. Yeah. So there's these men going, oh, he's sent an email, but she hasn't replied yet. Let's send an advertisement or let's send a tag. But 
for some people, I imagine that could be quite a useful way to see how it works. I mean, I didn't really. I think it's quite a patronising thing yeah. to the viewer of the show, to be honest. That bit didn't really work for no. me at all. But it, they do show how these things are designed to manipulate your decision making. And of course, none of this was news to me at all. And it's probably not news to a lot of people, but I do hope lots of people will watch it. I think it is getting a big viewing audience. It's interesting, none of these ex-employees let their children anywhere near social media. Oh, please don't tell me that. They (sighs) are absolutely ruthless about it with their children. They will not let them near it. So the key message about the documentary, I think, is that these platforms are all unregulated and that they need to be regulated ASAP. So it's really important to watch Mm. and it's also rather depressing. I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, I was going to say, do you watch it in bites? I watched it in one hit and and there was a the bit where those dramatisations got a bit boring for me and I found myself picking up my phone. <laughs> and I've heard lots of people have done that exact same thing. The irony, that's fantastic. Because it, it, they are a bit boring, the dramatisation. The rest of it is really is gripping. so funny. But you just think, oh, well, I'll just keep watching until this silly pretend algorithm bit's over. I'll um, just go on my phone and yeah. submit myself to an algorithm. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I mean, I've been able to see the really drastic changes that have occurred on Instagram. So I started my Virginia mm. Reads account um, at the start of 2016 and I've watched the way the algorithm has changed and it's really designed to manipulate mm. the user to a point that's quite perturbing to Mm. me and it's quite a staggering change that I've experienced just in my working of it and all of the things that I've noticed are talked about in the program. But I do recommend that you watch Mm. it, you know, even in spite of the couple of little clunky bits. Do you know how it works? Because I don't know how it works. Yeah, I do know how it works. Yes. Well, well, as much as anybody can know. I mean, one of the things one of the guys talks about is that they've programmed these things to such an extent that to some extent nobody knows. (laughs) It's Mm. so complicated and they've got footage of the size of these computers in Silicon Valley and they're like, you know, where warehouses that go under the ocean, massive, massive computers, and they're they're incredibly convoluted. But they know how long, for example, you look at an image and then they send you more of that. And I can see that. It's so obvious. I was looking at something the other day. And even if you just slightly slow down in your scroll, you'll get sent more of that. Wow. You know, it does make me think that if the whole box and dice was to be blown up, what impact it would have on people's psychology. People are so dependent. Yeah. On the visual experience, yeah. on the interactive connectivity experience, it's so much part of people's lives. Yeah. Well, I think these people all think it would be a good thing because they talk about the rise in self-harm and suicides and things with young girls. And the interesting thing is they talk specifically about young girls that were born in 1996, 97, and they were the ones who hit middle school at the time when they were first exposed. Mm. So it's very sobering. I'm not that confident that governments will come in and regulate them. I think we've had an attempt by our government to say we're not going to allow Facebook to take journalist stories, news stories for free anymore. And there seems to be this huge furor over the fact that Facebook said, well, we won't be able to provide any news on our Facebook anymore. And my reaction is, okay, fine, people can get their news elsewhere. But everyone else seems to think that's a terrible thing. No. Well, I don't go to Facebook for news. No. 
the reality is that what I'm being sent to look at on my Instagram or whatever is completely different from even what you're being sent yes. and from what everyone's being sent and people are being sent stuff. And you think, how can you how can possibly. you possibly not know that yeah. this is real and yet you realise that they're being sent stuff because they might have tapped into something early on yeah. about a conspiracy theory and then that's all that the algorithm sends them. Yes. That's actually really sad. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, but really worth watching. Mm. What have you been diving into, Well, though? I haven't been diving into an enormous amount. Because we were doing the Italian episode, I have been doing a little bit of cooking, as yeah. you might expect. Yeah. And, look, I was particularly inspired by a chapter in A Small Place in Italy because when Eric and Vanda first get possession of their, oh. you know, old farmhouse. You know, they arrive in the village and they're literally sleeping in sleeping bags in rooms that are drafty and and, oh. and they look around the town and they find the local butcher and he gives them some extra stuff over and above what they've bought and they meet a neighbour who gives them some wine and then they need milk so they're sent to visit a lady who, you know, milks every day and they take their little bottle and ask for some milk and she invites them for Easter Sunday lunch. Oh, how beautiful. Now, bearing in mind this is 1967, oh, my God, this chapter, you know, they start off with all the bruschetta and then all the different salamis and, you know, you're literally full by then, mm. as they say they were. Gosh. And then the lasagna and the tortellini comes out. And then they think, well, that's the end of lunch, um, <laughs> being English. They don't realise that it goes on for many courses. Yeah. And then there's the free-rage chicken with rosemary and potatoes. Oh. And then there's a course of pecorino. Uh, and then there's the tiramisu. Oh, my goodness. And then they finish off with coffee and walnuts. Well, oh, seriously, I was salivating <laughs> by the end of this. So I went and made a pesto. Oh. I roasted a whole batch of tomatoes, new spring tomatoes. Oh, no for, you know, like a passata or a pomodoro. And then I saw on social media <laughs> things that are sent to me, our friends Meg and Lisa who yes. run... Oh, the local produce ladies, The yes. local produce ladies. So I think we've mentioned them before. They're two ladies who have this great business sourcing food from producers and farmers in Western Australia. Not with more than X number of kilometres from where you live. That yeah, idea. and it's just it's beautiful. Fantastic. And there's honeys and cheese yeah. and meat and, mm. and vegetables. It's just magnificent. So we love the local produce ladies. And you can find them on the Open Food Network or you can just Google local produce ladies and you'll find them. And I noticed that one of them, I think it was Meg, had made a salsa verde this mm. week. So that's what I'm going to do today. I'm oh, going to make cool. salsa verde. And then I was reminded that we want you all to send in your submissions about your book clubs, please. Um, send us your book club story because we're reading the Edith Wharton book, The House of Mirth. And I just happened to look at my bookshelf the other day and I found this magnificent book that I obviously bought many years ago, Edith Wharton's Italian Gardens. That is so beautiful, Lou. And it turns out that Edith Wharton had a, you know, lifelong love affair with Italy. This it's, is a coincidence. It's, a, it's amazing. Yeah, the serendipity of it. It's a beautiful coffee table book. It it's is. gorgeous. And essentially, you know, she had been to Italy as a young child and lived there for a year or so. And then later on, you know, when she was an established writer, she was invited to go to Italy to write a book about Italian gardens. And she did, and it became this seminal text. I think it was called Italian Villas and Their Gardens, and it was published in 1904. Gosh, she was ahead of her time. Completely ahead of her time. And it became this groundbreaking work for 
garden writers and landscape architects. That's uh, and amazing. So this coffee table book is sort of a tribute to that. It's got all of some of her original Gosh, the photos are beautiful pictures and sketches from Edith Wharton's book, as wow. well as updated photographs of the gardens that she wrote about. So that's just a bit of a yeah. coincidence, given yeah, that we were amazing. having an episode yeah. on Italy. So I'll, I'll feature a picture of that on our Instagram. Gorgeous. So, yeah, everybody, please do send in your book club details. We have received a couple of messages on Instagram this week. So just confirming that we're not going to do several read-alongs with House of Mirth. We'd love you all to read it. And then I think it's the end of November, early December, we will do an episode about the book. Yeah, just one. It'll be in early yeah. December. So, of course, there will be spoilers with that episode because we'll all have read it. Yeah, yeah. And for one lucky book club, we will be sending you eight copies of the book. So that's the end of our visit to Italy. That was fun. So we hope you've enjoyed some armchair travel. We'll be back in a little while with another great episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please tell a friend or two so that we can find our our right audience. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up